You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Tucker Carlson was platformed this week at the Family Leadership Conference in Iowa. I think it was on Friday. And Tucker, uh, from my perspective, is not born again. He's from more of a liberal Anglican tradition uh, that's not really centered on the Word of God. But he has begun recently reading the Bible. In fact, he has completed the New Testament, and he said he is through uh, Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. So he's read through Genesis to Deuteronomy. And on this platform, here's what he said on Friday. He said, one of the things that I've come away with in reading the Bible is that with the exception of Jesus, every figure is like really flawed. <laughs> like flawed in a way where you'd be like, I don't know if I could be friends with that person. I thought that was quite perceptive of a, of a new reader of, of Scripture. And the name he pointed out in particular was Abraham. If you'll remember, we read about Abraham tonight in Hebrews 11, in that great faith chapter. But one of the evidences of, of the trustworthiness of the Bible is its bold, honest transparency of our heroes. Uh, even the best of men are, are men at best, and that's very evident in the Scriptures. Scriptures do not hesitate to reveal their sins, their shameful conduct. And so Tucker Carlson is correct. <clears throat> no other religious tome would dare reveal the human weakness and sins of its heroes. But one of the reasons the Bible does that is because um, the Bible is intent on teaching us not to trust in man, to, to trust in the Messiah who would come. <clears throat> and so that's why the Bible is so bare honest about even the greatest of heroes, flaws and sins. So keep in mind, the last time we were in Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 15. That's one of the great faith chapters. Thank you. Um, but now it's followed by one of the most scandalous chapters in the Bible. In fact, the, the, the three previous chapters have been great faith chapters. Uh, we saw in, in, in chapter uh, 13 uh, great evidence of faith when, when Abram allowed Lot to choose what portion of the land that he would, he would uh, live on. And, and then Abram uh, walked to and fro through the land. God promised him that he would be given this land, and then he built an altar at the end of chapter 13. Then in chapter 14, we saw him uh, take on uh, King Chedorlaomer and four regional kings who were really good at war. And he took them on with 318 men, and he whipped them. But that came only after... He trusted in the Lord and the promise of the gospel, and it says he was reckoned as righteous. 
So there's been a great expressions of faith, and now we come to chapter 16. We would think that all of these preceding events would have bolstered his faith. You, you would think that these great expressions of God's faithfulness to Abram would have inoculated him or uh, in some way protected him from some kind of great faith failure. And yet, Abram once again reminds us, number one, he's not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming from the seed of Abraham. We know that. Paul says that in Galatians 3.16. But he's not the Messiah. In fact, as you read the Old Testament, as it unfolds, we continue to see even the greatest of Israel's kings, David. He's not the Messiah, and he needs a Messiah himself. But the second reason we see this is that it's a warning to us because Abram is a lot like us. Paul says these things were written to us as examples and as warnings. And we see here a warning about vacillating between faith and unbelief. When we develop faith amnesia, when we develop God's promises amnesia to these promises, it can lead to utter anarchy. We see this even with this great couple of faith, Abram and Sarai, as we open up chapter 16, we see human anarchy just beginning to unfold. Look with me at the first part of verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now this chapter opens up with a, a restatement of an ongoing issue. I mean, think about this. Either God is impotent to bring about the promise that he made to them or there's a divine reason. There is an infinitely wise reason that he has made them wait. Now think about this. If God the Father makes this great couple wait, why should we fret? Why should we fret when his timetable is different than ours? Even when our desires are righteous. I mean, think about their desires. I'm not saying their desires were completely holy. I'm sure there were some self-serving desires there, but they recognized this was a couple of faith. We read this in Hebrews 11. They believed that it would be through their son that the world would be saved. You can't get any clearer than that in Genesis chapter 12. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And so they had these noble desires, and yet they have to wait. And oftentimes uh, we feel that having to wait means that God has taken his hand off of us. Our God has forgotten about us, or he has put us on the shelf and actually, at least in this case, it's the contrary. There's a reason for the waiting. But in the waiting, sins will get exposed, don't they? Because God, one of the purposes of waiting is not for what you're waiting on. It's to become what God is preparing you to be when you receive what he has for you in the waiting. 
But his, uh, both of their sins get exposed in this waiting process. So in this waiting, Sarah believes God needs her help. God needs Abram's help. This is a classic attempt to solve a problem with man's wisdom. But let's not forget as well, Sarai was an amazing woman. Uh, 1 Peter 3 is very clear on the kind of remarkable woman of faith. We saw it in Hebrews 11 as well, how amazing this woman was. But at this point, she'd been in Canaan for 10 years, and she's 75 years old, and she reasons, well, 75-year-olds don't have babies. And so we, we've got to do something uh, to expedite this. So she began to scheme. Second part of verse 1, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Sarai and Abram likely acquired Hagar from Egypt because she's Egyptian. You remember when the, Abram first displayed a, a lapse in faith, they had gone to Egypt when there was a famine in the land. And so Hagar was, as an Egyptian, a descendant of Ham, not a descendant of Shem. And we saw from Noah's uh, pro prophetic blessing that the Savior of the world would come through Shem, not through Ham. Now, while we're shocked, or at least we should be shocked, by Sarai's solution, I want you to understand this, and this is so important in our culture. Surrogate marriage was not only normal, it was fully embraced in the ancient Near Eastern culture. I mean, there's all kinds of material out there that you can find that, that shows it was not only normal, it was legal. And, it was, and what, what's legalized becomes normalized, and what becomes normalized becomes moralized, okay? And so a child born to a slave could be regarded as the wife's own child. Later in Genesis chapter 30, Jacob's wives, this is just one of those uh, important texts that remind us that our, our fathers and our grandfathers set patterns that we often emulate, even sinful patterns. Jacob's wives could not bear children for a time, and so they resort to their handmaids as concubines and surrogate mothers. And this was culturally fine. It was legal. But it wasn't fine with God. Just because something is legal or something is embraced by the culture does not mean God is happy with it. God had, from the very beginning, he had established the law for marriage. All the way back Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So every time you see um, 
polygamy in the Old Testament, it's a wink-wink. The writer assumes that you know this is in violation of God's standard in Genesis 2.24. And so this is exactly what is taking place here. Now, here's a very important point for us. If we are not constantly renewing our minds in the Word of God, we will be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's why Paul warns us, it's impossible to live the Christian life with a closed Bible. It's impossible because it's through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God that we renew our minds. And here's what happens. If the Word of God is not your authority, and clearly it's not if your Bible's closed, you will have an authority, but it won't be God. It will be a combination of your sinful sensibilities informed by a sinful culture. That will become your norm. That's why we see a lot of kids of committed Christian parents who leave home, perhaps go into college, and all of a sudden they're embracing an alien worldview that is so foreign to what they've been taught. It's not because God has changed. It's because they've changed. And the reason they've changed is because they have not renewed their minds in the Word of God. And so they have been conformed to the pattern of this world. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. Abram and Sarai had drank the Kool-Aid, if you will. And, and there's an ironic reversal here. In Egypt, Abram gave Sarai to the Pharaoh. Now here in Canaan, Sarai gives Abram to her Egyptian servant. It starts with the spiritual leader, doesn't it? Now, if we're scandalized by Sarai, Abram's passivity is even more offensive. Verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, I believe Moses, who wrote this account under the inspiration of the Spirit, who also wrote the account of the fall, is intentionally connecting those two narratives. He's essentially saying that this is another fall uh, with this, this Adam figure, Abram, who's to be the one who reverses what Adam, the original father, uh, ushered into this world. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice verse 2, it says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, what does that remind you of? Genesis 3.17. It says that Adam, Adam listened to his wife's voice. Now, th this is not making the point that husbands should not listen to their wives. 
That, that is not the point being made. Uh, here's the reason I can say that. Later in chapter 21, verse 12, God commands Abraham to listen to his wife. All right? So men, we better listen to our wives or, or you'll be living in the streets. Um, but the key is, with any person you listen to, and this is a, a word to wives listening to their husbands, we are to filter everything through the word of God. All right? And so just as Adam did not filter Eve's words to him through the word of God, Abram did not filter Sarai's words through the word of God either. Notice, Sarai took Hagar, verse 3, just like Eve took the fruit. Sarai gave Hagar to her husband just as Eve gave the fruit to her husband. I believe that Moses is intentionally connecting those accounts. And in both cases, the man willingly and knowingly partook. Their lives, because of their lack of faith in the promises, they had developed promise amnesia. All right? And because of their lack of promise, uh, faith in the promise of God and his provision and his timing, it was leading to a free fall. Listen to Proverbs 30. You've probably read this, but maybe it makes more sense to you now. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when, she, when he becomes king and a fool when he's filled with food. And an unloved woman, when she gets a husband, and get this, a maidservant, when she displaces her mistress. According to Proverbs, the earth is now trembling. Well, notice in the second part of verse 4, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That is always the case. It, 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 it's the case in adulterous relationships. It's in the case of, of premarital sexual relationships. You, you, you begin to look on contempt to those involved. In this case, she's looking on contempt at Sarai because Sarai was the one who suggested it. Verse 5, and Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So logically, Sarai was wrong to place all the blame on Abram because it was her idea. But actually, she was right because... He was the patriarch, and he was the head of his house. It's not that she wasn't culpable, but when Adam and Eve sinned, who did God go to? He went to Adam, didn't he? And so there's this responsibility laid on the spiritual head. It's here that Abram should have been the spiritual leader, and he should have said to his wife, who was equally godly to him, by the way, but she had a weak moment, he should have said, sweetheart, you're not thinking rightly. 
And, and I recognize that uh, you are struggling with God's timing, with waiting on him, wondering if we heard the promises correctly. But what you have asked me to do, it may be consistent with what the culture does, but we are people of the word. And Genesis 2.24 forbids this. That's what he should have done as the leader. Instead, he capitulated again uh, to social convention. Notice in verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Doesn't sound like the man of Hebrews 11, doesn't it? So he hides behind the customs of the ancient Near East again, which stipulates that if a concubine claims equality with her mistress when she has her children, uh, the, the mistress can demote her to her former status. And so Sarai did exactly what Abram called her or said to do. She did with Hagar as she pleased. Look at the notice, second part of verse 6. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Remember, this is dysfunction that began with two people of faith who weren't acting like they were people of faith. And this can lead to situations that are so complicated that there may be no solution in this life. All right? That, that, that's a warning to us all. There is grace. There is mercy for sure. But some sins are such that the results cannot be taken back. And the pain goes on and on in this world. This is a believer beware text. Beware. So Hagar flees from Sarai in verse 7. And here's where we begin to see God's grace in the midst of the chaos. We see the divine intervention starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, according to chapter 25, verse 18, Shur is on the border of Egypt. So where is she going? She's going back home. She's going back to Egypt. And remember who Moses is writing to. He's writing to people who've been in Egypt, who've been redeemed out of Egypt, but because of difficulties, some of them brought on by themselves, they have this real impulse to go back to, to Egypt. Uh, so in the same way, Hagar's flight to Egypt is not the right option, even though it's the logical option for her, because to abandon Abram means abandoning the blessings that are found in Abram. All right? And again, this is a, a, a word that was originally uh, directed to those who had that real impulse. But there by a spring, well, I love this, Hagar is confronted by this mysterious figure known 
as the angel of Yahweh. You're going to see that language throughout Scripture. It's the first time. Remember, Genesis is the book of first. This is the first time we, we read about this angel of Yahweh. Though I tend to believe, though that term is not used in Genesis of the Garden of Eden, he, he was the one who, who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And he speaks as if he is God. We're going to see that in verses 10 to 12. Ancient writers, not just ancient writers, uh, Christians throughout the ages have seen this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. I believe that. I tend to agree with that. It, acting in his office as mediator. All right? And so even, even then, God is preparing us for the incarnation by these pre-incarnate manifestations. Let me give you a fancy term, a Christophany, all right? I believe this is an, a Christophany. Later in chapter 48, Joseph will say that the angel had redeemed him from all evil. And this angel, it's clear, was all-knowing and spoke with all authority, all right? Two of the earmarks of our God. Notice in verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So again, her impulse is to run to Egypt. And Moses is writing this to people who have the same impulse. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. Now that doesn't sound just like a, a, a created messenger that we know as angels. Uh, th this is one who's involved in creation and, and giving life. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So in the patriarchal stories of Genesis, uh, there are several instances, several examples where individuals are promised descendants. We see it six times with Abram. We see it one time with Isaac. And we see it one time with Jacob. But this is the only instance where a matriarch is promised descendants. This is the kindness of God coming to bear on this woman who, in a very real sense, has been abused. Because she had no choice in the matter. I would venture to say that this would be called a form of rape in today's culture. And God's kindness is coming to bear on this woman. Well, notice verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Uh, maybe you have a little footnote in your Bible. God has heard. God has heard. 
because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> now, a wild donkey is, is a desert animal and is used in the Old Testament as a figure of a, an, an individualistic lifestyle, if you will. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He's going to live in perpetual conflict with everyone around him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinmen. The reality is that Ishmael's offspring would become a perpetual thorn in the flesh uh, to the people of God. Well, Hagar's response is utterly remarkable. I believe Hagar was a believer. I firmly believe that. In fact, she displays the greatest faith in Genesis 16. In fact, if Genesis 16 is all we knew about Abram and Sarah, we wouldn't think they were even believers, but we know that they are. Notice in verse 13. So she called the name, and I love this verse. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Elroy, Elroy. That's the name. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. There, for the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And again, you can see footnotes here that tell you what these names mean. Beer Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who, who sees me. What's remarkable about this? is that she did not revel in the information given to her about her son. She's reveling in God. This is Hagar worshiping the true and living God. And so she bestows two names, one on God and one on the place where she's encountered by God. And both celebrate the same reality, God's omniscience. Notice, you are a God of seeing one of the reasons I love that name is because if you're like me, and I have a feeling you are, there are many times in your life you feel God has forgotten you or God doesn't know where you are or he seems to be asleep. Psalm 44, wake up, O Lord. Psalm 13, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And here we see, even on the banks of, of Egypt, this woman who has been brutalized by Abram and Sarai, she's able to say, you're a God who sees. And, and when God comes to bear, it's not that just he knows what you're going through. His lordship is coming to bear if you're a believer. In your situation, his authority, his covenantal presence, his, his sovereignty, his goodness, his wisdom, all that God is, is coming to bear on those that he sees. That's what makes this language so beautiful, this name so beautiful. And then he named, she names that well, a well of the living one who sees. And I want to give you another trivia point here. She is the only person in the Bible who gives God a name. Everywhere else, God names himself. And this is how tender God is. This woman who has been brutalized, 
by both Abram and Sarai and cast out, God allows this woman to name him an inspired name, a name that we cherish even today. She also obeyed God, which is one of the evidences that she was a woman of faith. She traveled all the way back. How hard would that have been? She's traveling back to the man who raped her and the woman who who scorned her. The sense here is that she is a child of grace. I believe we're going to see her in heaven. And that brings us to the epilogue, verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, what's telling here is what's absent. In these last two verses, let me tell you what's absent, Sarai's name. That's telling because this child was intended to be Sarai's child, right? But three times in this epilogue here, Moses stresses that Hagar bore a son for Abram. So it seems that Sarai and Abram trying to help God out didn't really help him out a whole lot. In fact, scholars say it likely delayed the promise for them up to 13 years. And as we're going to see, the conflict is going to escalate with the birth of Isaac in chapter 21. In chapter 25, we're going to see that Ishmael fathers 12 tribes who would become the spiritual antithesis to the 12 tribes of Israel. Long story short, how tragic are shortcuts? How tragic are compromises? Yes, there is grace. There is forgiveness for those who are in Christ. Christ comes to the Abrams, the compromising Sarais and the Hagars in the wilderness, and he, he mediates that grace from God. But some sins, though forgiven in Christ, cannot be undone in this world. They cannot be undone. The only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. And yet, one encouraging note is that their failure, their sin, does not thwart the plan of God. That's glorious. In fact, uh, Tucker Carlson, who I do not believe is a Christian, but maybe, just maybe reading that Bible is going to get him saved, right? He said the second thing he has seen in reading the Bible, yes, the people in the Bible apart from Jesus are really messed up. But he said... There's one running this thing. There's one running this thing. He sees that in the scripture. He has eyes to see that. There's one that's ultimately sovereign over the affairs of men. All right? And, and we see that, and we're going to see this in the rest of the passage, or this, or this book. God had entered into a covenant with Abram, and remember what that covenant 
included. He said in Genesis 15, if you break covenant with me, I'm not going to turn my back on you. He passed through the animal parts. He said, the curse will follow me. The curse will follow me. And that's exactly what we know happened on the cross. Christ became a curse for us, redeeming us, redeeming Abram, redeeming Sarai from the curse of the law. Our compromises, our sins, and Abram's compromises and sins, and Sarai's compromises and sins were laid upon him. That is good news for Abram the sinner. That's good news for Sarai the sinner. That's good news for Hagar the sinner. And that is good news for us the sinner. With that said, let me close here. God never calls us to disobey him to get in his will. If you're single, don't settle for someone who cannot challenge you spiritually just because you know marriage is good. God doesn't need your help. He's the God who sees. Elroy, he knows where you are. He knows your circumstances, and he is in complete control. And not only is he complete in control, he's infinitely wise, he's infinitely good, and he loves you more than your parents love you. If you're in a relationship, don't commit sexual sin just so that you can have intimacy in that relationship as a single person. God doesn't need your help. You wait on the Lord. You trust him for the timing. If you're having to wait on the Lord in an area, here's what you do. Instead of trying to expedite it, just prepare to be the best steward for when he does deliver on what you are waiting on. But don't compromise. God does not need your help. Let me close with a couple of verses in that regard. I added this later. I don't think it's going to be on the board. Psalm 84, verse 11. If you believe this, you won't compromise. Do you know how many guys I taught at seminary who compromised in their singleness by watching pornography because they weren't willing to wait? Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You have one job. By grace, through faith, you walk uprightly and you trust the promise. That's a promise. His name's on the line. His name's on the line with that promise. And maybe the reason you're having to wait, you're not ready for what he has for you. So until he provides what he's promised and whatever that good thing is, you may not even know what it is. You steward it. You prepare to steward it. Secondly, in the waiting, he has promised you grace. Psalm or Isaiah 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. He's going to give you strength upon strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a promise. Trust his promise. Learn from Abram and Sarah the dire consequences when you don't trust his promise and wait on him by faith. So Adam and the musicians come forward and give you an opportunity here to maybe pray, to come to the altar and ask the Lord to give you grace to wait or, or to confess the sin of not waiting. And here's the glory of the gospel. When there's sin for not waiting, there's a, there's a cross there's a gospel. There's a, there's a grace that superabounds your sin. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, right? Or maybe you recognize tonight, I, one reason I can't wait is I, I haven't been divinely resourced. I, I haven't trusted in the Savior. I don't have the Holy Spirit. And, and tonight, maybe you can, you can come to God through His Son, Jesus, and and confess your sin and, and, and confess that you need Jesus as your Savior who lived the life that you could not live and died the death, propitiating God's wrath, satisfying God's wrath for your sin and then was raised so that you might have your sins forgiven. You can do that tonight as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.